Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shivaglani, and today on Raise the Line, I'm honored to be joined by Dr. Lois Nora, a deeply experienced leader in medical education who is Professor of Neurology, President Emeritus, and Dean of Medicine Emeritus at Northeast Ohio Medical University, as well as the former CEO of the American Board of Medical Specialties, which certifies over 800,000 physicians in the US. Dr. Nora has devoted her entire career to enhancing health education in order to improve the care of patients and the overall health of the population, holding leadership positions at multiple medical schools and specialty societies. She's also been heavily involved in accreditation efforts for medical schools and other organizations. And on a personal note, I wanna thank her because she was an early advisor and an investor in osmosis and has become a friend. So thank you very much, Dr. Nora, for being with us today. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me. So uh, obviously, I know a lot about your background, but for our audience, wondering if you can tell us a bit more about how you went from being a practicing neurologist to getting involved in health professional education. Certainly, I'm happy to. So I'm a third generation physician. I'm one of eight children, and my dad, to spend time alone with each child, would take us on house calls or to the hospital. So early on, knew that I was interested in medicine, and I planned on being a private practice neurologist and, in fact, began my career in that way. In the late 80s, I had the opportunity to be called back into medical education and be a teacher in a problem-based curriculum. I had the responsibility of participating in a pretty serious disciplinary issue within medical education. And most importantly, I had the experience of my younger sister dying um, in the health system. And the constellation of all of those things uh, really motivated me to decide to make some sense out of what didn't seem to make sense at that point and focus on medical education. I was fortunate enough to be invited to join the dean's staff as an assistant dean at Rush Medical College, had wonderful mentoring there. And so that's really how I transitioned from private practice to more of an academic practice and ultimately really focusing my efforts in academic administration. Well, you've had an incredible career, uh, not just in undergraduate medical education and uh, graduate medical education, but also continuing medical education with ABMS. And uh, you truly are an embodiment of lifelong learning, I know. So despite a busy career, I know you've managed to get a law degree and an MBA. I'm just curious, you know, that's, it's, it's hard enough for a, a physician to get one of those. What motivated you to get both of those other degrees and how have those impacted your career? Well, the law degree, I have always been very interested in clinical ethics and health policy. And so during my residency, which came soon after some of the early brain death cases and cases about medical futility, I knew that I wanted to further study that area. And so my first years in practice, I went to law school at the University of Chicago. And kind of it was a very crazy three years doing that, but uh, had a phenomenal education And I would say how law school influenced my practice most was uh, I got the degree in the late 80s when there was a substantial malpractice and liability crisis going on, but lawyers didn't intimidate me. And so that helped me uh, in a lot of my work. More importantly, I think law school really allows 
the person to learn to think from the other side. And so I think one of the greatest skills I gained in law school was the ability to think through a problem from the perspective of the person on the other side of the argument or another person in the problem. And that, you know, oftentimes changed my mind or changed part of my mind, or at least helped prepare me to defend my position most effectively. The MBA was later in my career. So when I went to the University of Kentucky as an associate dean, after being there a while, I was invited by Chancellor Jim Holsinger to participate as an inaugural fellow in a physician leadership program that they were developing. And in that program, we had curriculum that overlapped with the business school. At the end of the year, at the end of the program, the dean of the business school came in and told the 18 of us, well, you've done accounting one and two, and you've done economics, and you've done health policies, so we'll give you credit for that if any of you want to continue with your MBA. And about four of us looked at each other and did so. My children were young then, and so I it took me a long time. I took one class at a time for a number of years, but ultimately got my MBA. In terms of probably the most important thing relative to my medical career that I learned in that program, nobody teaches teams as well as business schools do, in my opinion. And I really learned the value of being on a team, working on a team, and recognize that when you have a team that is working well, it is much more than the sum of its parts. So from that time, it's something that I really focused on in terms of trying to recruit people into teams and then build and maintain strong teams. I really like how you kind of condensed some of the key takeaways from both of those uh, experiences and and degrees. I'm impressed that you think that was a condensed answer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the MBA, I can definitely relate to the MBA uh, comment you made, having having done that myself. Um, I was very nice. impressed with how the section-based learning as well as team-based learning and uh, interactions seemed to far exceed what I learned uh, during my medical school days. And now that everything is so interprofessional and physicians and nurses and pharmacists have to collaborate, I can see you know how you've summarized that nicely. So again, given that you've had experiences leading and changing uh, things across UME, GME, and CME, what are, you know, say two or three changes that you think now in 2020, you'd like to see the medical education system make to improve the experience of patients as well as the clinicians? In terms of two or three things, I think that going forward, we need a real relook at clinical education in our country. And within clinical education, I would include team training and interprofessional education. I think because of many of the challenges within medical practice right now, medical student education too often is shunted to the side. What we've done in terms of standardized patients and bringing in simulation has been terrific but really understanding the medical student role and the value of the medical student in the clinical training situation and of the team would be something that I would focus on. I think that um, the current pandemic has demonstrated that medical education has to pay a lot more attention to issues of one health or the intersection between climate, animal health, and human health. 
we don't pay enough attention to it. I think in part because it's interdisciplinary. It actually calls for us to bring veterinarians into our teams and into our thinking more effectively than we currently do. But that would be an area that I think needs to be focused on. And I think one other area that I would think about are the humanities. Uh, Again, something that I think the current pandemic has shown us is that not only for physicians, nurses, and our other heroic care providers, but for patients, for people in the community, a broad knowledge of the humanities or an understanding of the humanities helps place our work in a higher and more meaningful context and gives us ways of communicating, relaxing, taking care of our own well-being in ways that aren't present if we're in a world without humanities. I think those are excellent observations. And um, again, having just started the medical training myself, but knowing a lot of people across the continuum, all three of those resonate. We, uh, we've done some work with the Merck manual, which is famous for both its medical and veterinary manual. And they were the ones who introduced the concept of One Health to me years ago. And now, obviously, it's shown what will happen you know, to our food system and how pandemics can arise from it. So that's a great observation. You mentioned the pandemic a couple of times during this answer. Um, you know, the reason we even call this podcast Raise the Line is everyone is familiar with the topic or the term flattening the curve, where we're trying to get people to socially distance and avoid increasing the number of people with coronavirus and overwhelming the healthcare system. Raising the line is essentially what osmosis and I think your career has been focused on, which is increasing healthcare capacity and quality. Uh, and I'm just curious, what are some of the things the COVID crisis has revealed about our healthcare system, in your opinion? And what are some key steps you think we need to take to be able to raise the line collectively? So I think what COVID has revealed most effectively is that we do not have a healthcare system. We have parts that could be in a system but we don't have a system. You know, for someone who is acutely ill, close enough to get to one of our hospitals or health centers, fortunate enough to be admitted, but having to be that sick to be admitted, um, I think those people have gotten absolutely outstanding care from, from truly heroic people who have been working to keep them alive and bring them back to health. But what else have we learned about our lack of a system? We have not focused on public health for decades. Public health has never had the focus that it is needed. And so while we have public health professionals who I think oftentimes do remarkable work with very limited budgets in their direct sphere of influence, we do not have a system. We did not have a system for identifying protective equipment, for identifying key necessary other equipment like ventilators and the like. And we're in a system where governors were fighting with governors or bidding against governors to try and get them. Our lack of focus on prevention and having a health system that takes multiple things into account from food deserts to actual access to um, medical care has contributed to the situation that we have with health disparities and the dramatic differences in morbidity and mortality 
that individuals in the African-American and Latino community are experiencing. So we need, most importantly, to think about and to develop a health system. And I think many of your listeners are younger people in the health professions. And, you know, I think this is very much work that they need to insist upon being done and doing as we move forward. A health system has national components, it has regional components, it has local components, but identifying those components and developing strategies at each one of those levels that can intersect effectively is absolutely critical. So I think the biggest lesson about the health system that the pandemic has shown us is it does not exist in this country, and we need to develop one, hopefully one that separates access to health care from employment, because the next major issue, or one of the major issues that we're going to be facing in the coming months is going to exemplify that as with the economic crisis, so many people are going to be losing health insurance. And as a result, we'll have even more difficult problems accessing preventive services or actual acute care services. So speaking of adapting to the coronavirus, I'm curious what your thoughts are specifically on how medical schools, residency programs, and health systems may change their education. You may have seen the news that Harvard Medical School is going completely online for their incoming class of uh, students this fall. So what are your thoughts on the adaptations that need to be made? I think there will be a number of adaptations. Certainly more of it will be online. I think we will also be challenged to find out new ways of assessing people online. I think this could move us more quickly towards competency-based medical education and perhaps something less than the strict time limits that we have placed on medical education. That being said, as I mentioned earlier, I think attention to clinical education is absolutely crucial. And identifying the sweet spot for what is the appropriate place for online education and how do you build a community in that venue, but also what is the right amount and how can you bring people together in ways that are safe, but also in ways that allow early clinical experience, early work for medical students. And I think a number of those issues all flow into residency education as well. Um, As you know, I have been involved in some of the work that's being done nationally on clinician resilience and well-being. And a huge piece, I believe, of clinician resilience and well-being is being appropriately supported with the necessary equipment and the necessary training to be involved, whether you're a medical student or a resident, but also not pulling people too far away from the very meaningful work that we actually do with patients. Shiv, if I can mention, um, for example, we all understand why medical students were taken out of the clinical environment, and there were very good reasons for it, and it was necessary. But without question, there are medical students at all levels of training who want to be doing more. And that's the sort of thing I think we can think about with building health systems in the future. But I've recently, for example, become familiar with the National Student Response Network, 
which was started by a medical student at Harvard and has multiple medical students, nursing students, PA students working together on non-clinical aspects of support to the system during the pandemic. I think that's an example of how can we think about education more broadly than the basic sciences or the clinical sciences, but also the remaining engaged during this pretty remarkable time in our history, which is probably not going to go away real soon. Definitely. I mean, that, that is a really great thing to mention. Um, I think I'm familiar with the National Student Response Network, and we'll do our part to make our audience more aware of it so they can sign up as well. I know we're coming up in time, so I one or two more questions. Uh, you know, having served in the healthcare system, uh, both as a provider as well as an educator, um, this is an unusual time probably in, in all of our careers where healthcare professionals are treat, being treated and hailed as heroes more than ever before. Every company from McDonald's, which is offering free meals to healthcare professionals, to Marriott, which is offering free stays for those health professionals, are trying to do their part to help out the frontline healthcare workers. Do you think that this will be a lasting change uh, in the psyche around this? And, and if so, do you see there being maybe policy changes, maybe reducing student debt, for example, or improving support so there's less burnout? Um, I'm curious what your thoughts are on the lasting effects of COVID on, on how society views healthcare professionals. It's interesting. I certainly hope it would be lasting. I think we are seeing the health professions and the really remarkable individuals at the front lines in very important ways right now. But I think true clinician well-being, true resilience, um, as important as all the expressed thanks of those companies and others are, I think it really is going to necessitate some serious thinking about the system that we are in. And I think changes in the system could be associated with different ways that we think about medical student tuition or debt, but has to think about ways, first and foremost, that are patient-centered, but also take the clinicians into account. One of the reasons that we understand people as heroes right now is that they have been willing to walk into the fire without the appropriate protective equipment. We need to recognize that, but beyond that, we need to recognize that something is terribly wrong, that that could actually happen over a continuous period of time. And so I think the most important thing about clinician resilience and well-being about all of this is rethinking the system and building it in a way that is evidence-based, patient-centered, and very attentive to clinician well-being and resilience. But being able to take care of patients safely is a remarkable aspect of it that has to be taken into account. Do you have any other final parting thoughts or, or comments that you'd like our audience to, to hear? Well, Shiv, I know that your audience has a lot of younger health professionals and students. And I would just, you know, to my younger colleagues, I would say, wow, have you chosen correctly? Medicine as a physician and the health professions, I think uh, it is just a remarkable time to see the beauty of the science. I think COVID has been one of those um, medical phenomenon that 
we will look back on and understand how clinical reasoning was so important. Evidence-based and also the art of medicine has played such a role over these past months from everything we initially thought of it as predominantly a pulmonary condition and now realize that it is multi-system. It's changed how we care for patients, how we thought about treating the pulmonary disease initially and how that has changed to proning and how hydrated patients are and everything like that. So I think it's a remarkable time to see the beauty of the science, the beauty of the care, the heroism that is medicine, and I think it is also this important time for underscoring that the health system with the associated health education system needs to change dramatically. And your listeners to a very large degree are going to be the generation that's going to insist upon it and do it. So I wish them well. Those are definitely inspirational words. So thank you, Dr. Nora, for all uh, for taking the time to be with us today and for all that you've done to raise the line as well. Thank you so much. Take care. With that, I'm Shiv Gulani. Thank you for checking out today's episode. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. Podcast.